Matthew chapter 16, if you have a Bible with you, or, so, or one handy, or you can get access to it, Matthew 16. By way of introduction, if we haven't met, my name is Lance, and I serve as a pastor here. We're studying Matthew 16 because around a year ago or so, I don't know if we're not, we're not quite exactly in, or maybe a little bit over a year ago, uh, we chose the first book of the New Testament to consider together, to look at the way that Jesus fulfills all the promises of Scripture, that he is a king who has come, and that he is building a kingdom. And we've gone through quite a bit concerning his life. If you're just jumping in now, I, hope, I think this morning hopefully it will be clear to you, but I'd invite you as well to look back and consider who Jesus is. We've seen him coming in unique and specific fulfillment of all of the birth narratives of the Old Testament. We've seen him blessed in his baptism, blessed by those around him. We've seen him tempted in the wilderness, being a more faithful and better son than Israel was. We've seen Jesus teaching in such a way that those who were around paused and said, wow, where did he get these words? He teaches as one who has authority. We've seen Jesus reimagining and reanimating the law in the Beatitudes. He upended the way that we normally think about life. We've seen Jesus working miracle after miracle after miracle. And what has taken place when you add all this together by the time we get right here in the middle of Matthew 16 is that Jesus is a walking whirlwind of activity. There are murmurs, there are dust-ups, there are arguments, there are crowds that press in. I think the Greek word that might describe what followed Jesus was brouhaha. There was just a constant, I made that one up, but there's just a constant cyclone of activity around him. And what's going to take place now here in Matthew 16 is that he is going to press a particular question. He pulls back and he presses a question, one that will end up being not only a pivot point in the book of Matthew, but I'm going to make the case today that the question that is pressed by Jesus that we're about to read really is a pivot point in all of the cosmos, over all of history. It separates down the middle. So let's read now 13th verse, Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I'm going to pray for a moment. I would encourage you to, to bow as well, and let's ask that we have softened hearts to learn. Father, we come expectantly, not because we are impressive or worthy or can demand from you, but because you have shown us who you are. You're a father who loves his children, 
A Father who delights in giving us good things, especially the good gift of your Holy Spirit. So give us that childlike expectation, a childlike desire, our praying or lack of praying, the the powerlessness of our prayer life is not because of your begrudging nature or your miserliness. You are generous and kind and gracious. It's because we often don't ask. So we pause now and we ask. Give us light. Help us to see. I pray that we would answer with certainty concerning the person of Jesus. And we pray for this in his name. Amen. When I was about to turn 14, I was slowly marching up toward one of the greatest days in any young person's life, because at the age of 14, you could get your driver's permit. And three months after that, you would be given freedom, precious freedom, freedom to drive, freedom to engage with friends. So everyone looked forward to, and I wanted to get to this moment as soon as I could. So you circle on the calendar, and May 1st of my 14th birthday, I wanted my mom to take me to the place of glory, that wonderful bounty of blessings, the DMV. I wanted to get there. And I marched in, and they had electronic screens that would have you take the DMV permit test. Now, I want you to imagine... A 14-year-old who is full of verve and desire and wants to go take this exam and go for it, but also is full of what one might call conceit and arrogance. Because what I had imagined leading into this exam is that because I was academically driven and had done well in school, I thought to myself, man, I'm taking, I'm learning algebra and stuff. How hard could a driver's permit test really be? I've ridden in cars plenty of times. And so I marched into the DMV, and I walked around, and I waited in line, and then I got up, and it was finally me against the machine. The screen was going to describe all of the knowledge that I would need to be a safe, permitted driver for a few months, and I began to take the test. Now, the way the test was organized, what I did know through friends and from the kind lady who introduced me to the test, is that I had one goal, one goal to get to the glory of the permit, and that was I needed to answer 20 questions correctly before I failed five. And to help ratchet up the pressure on the bottom of one corner of the screen was the number of correct answers that I was piling up. And in the other corner of the screen was the number of wrong questions that I had failed. And so I began and things went well for the first couple. Things were simple like, how many wheels does a car have? Yeah, I'm just making that up. But again, I'm thinking like easy, four, boom, hit it. And I'm seeing numbers go up and they're great. And then I also fail some. And I'm a little bit indignant. I think, how dare they ask such crazy questions? Who needs to know what tonnage of a truck has to have clearance if you come around a corner of 27 degrees? That's what it felt like, right? And I got to a pivotal moment where with the 15 questions correct, I failed my fourth question. So I am now 15 and 4 and my knuckles are white, and I'm going to power through, and one after the next, I get the next four questions correct. And I stand me against the machine, 19 correct and four wrong, knowing that everything hinges on this next question. There is a question put to me on which everything changes. 
I either go off basking in glory, able to drive myself in full freedom with an adult for a little while, or I experience what I had never experienced in my life, which was the shame of a failed exam. And I'm not sure exactly the details, but they were more or less this. If a farm truck is driving at 73 miles an hour carrying 17 pigs, and four of the pigs have an intestinal disease, and you come to a seven-degree decline across a railroad track, which was built between 1873 and 1876, how fast should you go assuming there are four horses watching you from the left-hand side? That's what it felt like to me. That's what the question might as well have been. And I was faced now with a guessing game. There were four possible answers. I took a deep breath. I pressed the button. What I expected to happen and what I hoped would happen was the ceiling would open and confetti would come down and all the DV employees would, uh, would basically become like Texas Roadhouse employees and they would bring me a hat and say, great job. But instead, I saw a black screen followed by one large X in red that said, thank you for attempting this test. You have failed the driver's permit exam and will be able to reschedule. I walked out in shame and had to go back a few days later, so it was not until May 5th that I got my permit, way behind schedule. And what I often don't tell people at that particular moment is that I also got four wrong on that exam. (laughs) But I pulled it through and have now driven more or less safely for all these years. That is a small microcosm of something that ends up being really at the center of the whole universe. That's what's being told to us in Matthew 16. And that is that sometimes you're faced with a question, the answer to which changes everything. You're faced with a need to answer, to come up with a response. And one of those responses will lead to life and freedom and glory, giving a new identity, a new license, The other, to everlasting shame and a carrying of guilt and of loss, a red X. Jesus has been in the midst of many, many cyclones of activity. He pulls away to this area north of the Sea of Galilee, again, just about as far as he ever got away, probably for solace, attempting to retreat. He turns to ask his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And what follows, we're going to look at just two major things related to this question. What follows is an answer. And we want to make sure we understand the content of this answer because it is the difference between everything. And then second, we want to reflect on and I think be in awe and wonder at the source of this answer. How does one come to understand if four pigs have intestinal disease and you're driving at a seven-degree grade? How do you come up with this answer? How is that ever possible? So we're going to look at the content of the answer, and we're going to look at the source of this answer. We won't have a ton of time. I'll just foreshadow for you that the last few verses of this section in Matthew 16 have been probably the most debated and the most pivotal in the history of how is the church organized. 
We'll offer some insight on that. We probably won't get totally through it this morning. But before we get there, we're going to focus on the answer, the content of the answer, and the source. So Jesus has now turned to his disciples and he said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some. Now anyone who's ever been in an organization or attempted to lead something or ever gotten feedback know how absolute dangerous it is to use anonymous words like people and they and some. I remember at one point thinking when I was trying to do better at something and asked others their opinion that the only one who ever had an opinion was someone named they. Well, you know, they are saying uh, you should tone it down a little bit. Well, some people are saying uh, you're terrible and should quit. And what you really want to know is who are these people? The ubiquitous they is a dangerous thing to ask, but Jesus says, what about they? What are they saying concerning me? The response from the disciples is that some say John the Baptist. Now, that may be an odd response because we have just gone through the end result of John the Baptist, and what we're realizing now is that this is going to be a list of wrong answers. Why is John the Baptist wrong? Well, for one, he's dead in graphic form. It's kind of a cute story. Sometimes after services, uh, the staff get to be happy about the way the church is organized. Uh, Brian actually taught the passage on John the Baptist and his request, and we saw his very, very tragic demise when he was beheaded at the request of the king. And in the days that followed, we were gifted, it really is a gift, with the sweet note-taking ability of a child in the service that day. (laughs) And uh, let's just say that their interpretation of beheading was spot on. There were stick figures with heads, and then there were floating heads. But it was one of the first times, one, where I thought, I'm so glad that kids are paying attention, and another time where I thought, we have to mark these notes as mature before you can note them. But here's the thing. That child got the picture and understood what happened to John the Baptist. But it's very possible that not everyone, especially as far north as Caesarea Philippi, had gotten the message. News didn't travel as quickly back then. So maybe some were saying, wait, is this the guy we've heard about? Because I don't know if you remember this, but John the Baptist had a much larger following than Jesus. John the Baptist was a phenomenon. When he went somewhere to baptize and began preaching from the wilderness, he was the Beatles. Everyone knew John the Baptist in his ministry. People would flock to him. So word of John the Baptist, this crazy prophet who had begun speaking repentance, had traveled everywhere, and maybe they just didn't hear about his demise. In fact, all the way in the book of Acts, when the apostles are going around and seeing the Spirit move and the church multiplied, there are some people they interact with who know nothing about Jesus. All they know is the baptism of John the Baptist. So some people say, I don't know, this is John the Baptist. Maybe they didn't know about his death, and even if they did, they thought maybe he's come back from the dead. Others say Elijah. There were a picture. There's been a picture from the Old Testament, the teaching of the, of the Jewish prophets. In fact, even in the practice of the Passover meal, they were told to leave an empty chair because the spirit of Elijah, the person of Elijah would one day return this hope of the presence of God amidst his people in power. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, had said that in the coming days, the spirit and the power of Elijah would return. 
So some were saying, man, maybe it's Elijah. And again, of course, we know this is an X, a wrong answer. The content of their answer was wrong. Jesus at one point even says, if you would have ears to hear, I would tell you Elijah has come, that his spirit was in John the Baptist. And then the disciples say, you know, some people say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I think Jeremiah here, I I can't surmise any specific reason why Jeremiah, except that he was often a leading prophet. And it's just a way to say, maybe this is a great prophet in our midst. And I just want to note something here. The answer to the question, who is Jesus? hinges more on more than just general esteem for him as a person. I want you to note that the wrong answers here did not include things like this. Who do they say that I am? They did not include uh, Beelzebub. Some people say you're the devil incarnate, or some people say you're a liar. Some people say you're a charlatan. In other words, opposition to Jesus, being on the wrong side of this question, who is he, does not mean that you're antagonistic. Sometimes you just haven't said enough. In fact, there are many of the major religions of the world that grant to Jesus a hat tip to say, you know, Jesus is pretty cool. We sh- you should listen to his teaching. He's gentle. He's kind. I really love his anti-establishment stuff. Even the hippies, they love Jesus for this. But they don't say enough. They see him too small. And to see Jesus too small is fatal. There are major religions of the world that grant that he is not only a good teacher, but a prophet. They would even say he is a prophet amongst prophets. But it turns out that that is not the correct content of the answer. And if you press that choice, Jesus, mere good man, mere good teacher, just one of the prophets, then it will result in a failure of the test. So he turns now, and he does something that is necessary for all of us who desire to be spiritual, desire to be faithful. He turns from the ethereal, the theoretical, the philosophical, the question out there to the question in here. He turns to them in verse 15 and says, I'm going to ask you the question, and I want to know your content, but who do you say that I am? And I'm grateful that he presses it to them individually. I want you to note that he does not say, but who does your denomination say that I am? But who does your ethnicity say that I am? Who who did your parents say that I am? Who do your friends say that I am? Who does your pastor say that I am? Eventually, it comes home to roost in our own souls. Faith is an expression of a personal commitment to Christ, a desire for him. He says, who do you say that I am? And what I find is that so often... When the stakes are raised to my own person, my commitment, when I need to step out on the ice of the frozen lake, lakes do freeze over, just take my word for it, that it's a little harder. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes giving advice to friends is the easiest thing in the world. You can see their problems so clearly. Oh, let me tell you, it's just like Kierkegaard used to say, and you just have every answer for them in the world. People dealing with the worst problems. Sometimes you can oversimplify it. You could say to yourself, well, why don't you just stop? Just stop that. Just don't do that. Oh, let me tell you, if I were you, I'd march right into that boss's office. Here's all you have to do. Just lay down the boundaries and tell him this and say you want $4 more. But things change when they get personal. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter, which he often does, becomes a vocal spokesman for the group. And he steps forward and he answers correctly. He answers such that Jesus responds with blessed, makarios, the same word that he used in the Sermon on the Mount. Happiness upon you, Simon Barjona. He answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Some commentaries point out this is the first time that Matthew puts these words, you are the Christ, the Messiah. The idea of this Old Testament promise, Christ essentially means a coming king, the promised one. And people have noted this is the first time that Matthew puts these words in real time in someone's mouth during the ministry of Jesus. Matthew already spoiled it. He's told us numerous times in his narrative, in his comments, as as a writer of the book, he has a voice and a knowledge that is beyond the moments of the story. So he's mentioned it numerous times. But this is the pivotal moment, the first time in the book of Matthew where someone in real time in response applies this title to Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what this does is it fleshes out the answer that Jesus is asking, what is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? Son of Man is also a powerful title in Scripture. And I think it's a delightful thing that Jesus, you know that Jesus called himself Son of Man more than anything. He loved this title. Why? I think it's because It could mean everything or nothing. Jesus loved to teach in parables. He loved to have mysteries hidden, revealed. And the Son of Man was a title that could mean the Son of Man from the book of Daniel, a vision of a conquering king who came with the clouds and power and was an answer and fulfillment. But the other funny thing about the phrase Son of Man is that in Aramaic it had come to be a standard greeting for any old guy. It was a way to say, I. So if you were describing someone and said, son of man, you either meant, and it could mean all the fullness of this Daniel prophecy fulfilled, or it could mean, you know, the guy at the 7-Eleven, the son of man. And I think that Jesus often uses this phrase because it was a way to put to the test to be open and revealed and at the same time hidden. So the question pressed to Peter here, and when he answers, you are the Christ, Peter is giving a definitive response. In some ways, you are both. You are humanity, divinity taken on flesh. You have become just one of us, but at the same time, you are not just one of us. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the divine made low. And this response, how you handle Jesus, what do you say concerning him? Is he merely a good teacher? Is he just a prophet? Is he someone who should be ignored? The way you answer this question changes everything. The testimony of the church from this point forward has essentially been this. If you see Jesus and receive him as Savior, if you see him and say Christ is Lord, if you see him as divinity put on human flesh, If you answer affirmatively like this, then there is coming a day when you will stand before the judgment seat. And the correct answer will change everything, all of humanity down the dividing line of who do you say that Jesus is? He's the reason that churches talk about Jesus so much. Why do we insist on Jesus over and over and over again and not just some general deity? It's because what you do with him and what you see in him changes everything. 
These same apostles later, in fact, Peter in preaching, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. You either confess Jesus or you're lost. You either get this right, the content of this answer right, or the screen goes blank and the X comes on in red. We insist on Jesus because getting him right changes everything. So my encouragement to you, as much as you can, and as clearly as you can see, think on Jesus. Consider him. Is he as good as he says he is? Is he able to save to the uttermost? Is he as merciful as he promises? Will he walk beside you? Will he be your shepherd? The answer again and again and again for those to whom we have entrusted ourselves to him is yes and yes and yes. All is yes and amen in him. Now this is an amazing moment. Of all people, Simon Peter gets it right. That's astounding. The content of the answer. He doesn't say John the Baptist, not Elijah. He's not confused any longer. He has a moment of clarity that busts through and leads to life. So we want to ask the next question. Well, how did he get there? What's the source of his right answer? If we want to follow his logic, how do we get there? Because as you know, oftentimes he got it wrong. Simon Peter is a very interesting character, full of courage and strength, jumping to walk on the water oftentimes insisting on being the first to follow Christ and also constantly getting in his own way. One of my favorite sections concerning Peter's life are these few verses, because we're not there yet, but next week, Jesus is going to have to tell him, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, (laughs) which I just, the juxtaposition of Peter is amazing. He gets the answer right, the, the ceiling opens and the blessing comes and the confetti's all there and I'm sure he's just beaming and then within a few moments he's like, ah, I blew it! Because he's... Maybe some of us can relate. But I want us to note clearly because if getting this answer right, if getting the content of this answer right changes everything, then we ought to listen to Jesus on how he gets there. What is the source of this answer? Well, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, I know you might be thinking, Jesus had told them who he was. The prophets had written who he was. The scriptures spoke concerning him. Isn't there some flesh and blood involved? The answer seems to be yes. Otherwise, there's no purpose for the church. There's no purpose to teaching. Why look at your Bible? If if all these physical things can't reveal it, But I think that's not the point that Jesus is making. The point that he's making is that there is a definitive source, a kind of source that makes all the difference. It is the source of his knowledge, the content of his answer that changes everything. It is the definitive, paramount, and significant source. And what Jesus says here is a mystery, something to be both delighted in and absolutely sat in awe and wonder. He says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. I think what it essentially means is this. This is what Jesus is getting at. In addition to everything that could be spoken and everything that could be modeled, everything that could be done in our human capacity, 
You can bottle up and you can consider and you can get to the point of considering Jesus, but you won't accept him or confess him until the Spirit of God moves in your soul, until the Father determines to reveal his Son by the Spirit, you won't get to the right answer. The Spirit is definitive. In fact, I would summarize all of redemptive history essentially as this. It is the God the Father working by God the Spirit to reveal God the Son. That is the whole of redemptive history. What God the Father is doing is working by His Spirit so that Jesus in His identity would be revealed to those who need Him lest we perish. I don't know if you've been in circumstances like this or how you even consider your own content of the answer to who is Jesus. But I beg of you to consider that you are not paramount. You are not the definitive reason you are in Christ. This is to cut across all boasting. It is so easy and tempting to think something like this. Subtly, we barely ever say it. Hopefully, you never say it out loud. But so easy is it to believe something like this. Well, I'm a Christian, and I confess Jesus because, you know, I've always been a little more spiritual than my friends. I'm a Christian because I had a really convincing camp counselor. Or I'm a Christian because, you know, when it comes right down to it, I've always been pretty moral, honestly. I think everyone else just doesn't understand, but I really do. I feel bad for my sins, so therefore I know I need Jesus. I guess I'm just better. It's easy to subtly think something like this. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus because I'm a little smarter. The rest of the Sunday school kids, I mean, God help them, literally, because they just couldn't figure it out. But I've always been a good problem solver. Any riddle to me, I'm in. And you can subtly begin to take credit for and believe that the definitive action in your own soul in confessing Jesus was your own doing. And what Jesus does is he cuts straight through. This is Peter's best triumph. It's the moment when he finally got it right. And then Jesus says, now don't get this wrong. Don't get it right in the wrong way. I want you to understand that my Father has granted you this as a gift. This isn't the only time that Jesus teaches this. Let's look at John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we're not quite yet to the verse that everybody knows. The 16th verse of John 3 is this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We know that's coming, but prior to that, in his conversation with Nicodemus, this is what Jesus says in verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You know not where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, this is not a humanly controlled activity. Faith in Christ is seeded in by a seed. I mean, a seed that flowers into faith. It is in a soul of a person revealed, turned on. The engine of our faith is a gift from the Father whose ministry has been from eternity past and will be in the future by His Spirit to reveal His Son. That is how anyone is ever able to confess Christ in faith. 
Later in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus teaching again, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Faithfulness with the gospel means inviting people to Jesus. Faithfulness for the church means declaring and describing and patiently helping people to understand the best that we can. But we must reject the notion that by slick presentation, by the right kind of hype video, by the perfect rhetorical flourish, by enough cajoling and stomping and excitement from the pastor guy, from the sweetness of a grandma, from the perfection of parents, none of these things are definitive and ultimate in the person seeing and having their eyes opened to the beauty of Jesus. We are completely and utterly dependent on a move of the Spirit of God or we have nothing. In fact, we should come to be suspicious of. If we have reasoned ourselves into Christ, we can reason ourselves out. If we have been cajoled and guilted into Christ, we can reject and be guilted out. If we have been emotionalized into Christ, when the emotion is gone, we can be emotionalized out. If we have been socially engineered into Christ, we can find ourselves outside of Christ when it is no longer cool or hip or our friends betray. The question becomes this. Has the Spirit of God given you faith? Has the Spirit of God, by a gift of the Father who loves you, has He drawn you to Jesus? Do you see Him on the cross dying for the forgiveness of sins? Do you see Him in His perfections as beautiful, as something that you would long to be and desire one day? Do you see in Jesus hope for life through death? If so, this is a gift of God. Now, Scripture will go on to say that this miracle is wrought as we are faithful to proclaim. I have no other hope. If your hope for seeing Jesus clearly is that I can talk good enough to make it intelligible to you, I should quit. I'll just, I'll just resign. Because please, for your sake and mine, if it rests on someone being able to be convincing enough to be moved in Jesus, we are hopeless. But why can I have confidence today? Why as a church in a moment do we say, come to the table, the body and blood of Jesus will forgive your sins? Why can we sing confidently and powerfully about all that Christ has done? Because God has promised that where his people gather and where these things are proclaimed, he works the miracle. He sends his spirit because the spirit loves to reveal the son and the father desires children to come. But it is all dependent on something that we do not control. It's funny how this works. We, we want the levers. We want the levers of control. It'd be so much easier to do church that way. It's as though Jesus says in John 3, the wind blows wherever it is wishes and then we install fans. At the end of the day, this may cut against your pride. You may say, well, if I can't be involved, I just won't show up. 
A couple of things to that. I might say to you, first, it, it, it would be good to have our pride cut in that way. I think, it's, I think it's good to remember that all that we have in Christ is a gift, not to be controlled. I think it keeps us marveling and humble and in wonder. But secondarily, I want you to see that it is the greatest joy for it to not be of your doing. To finally be free, to get rid of the performing and the wondering and the preening and the posturing. To realize that you are loved and in Christ simply because you have a Father who has known you from all eternity past and, and, and wants you and has said, I'm going to speak their name. I'm going to reveal the Son to them because I love them and I'll never let go. There is joy in that. There's life in that. And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to pray. I want to pray that in the mundane and the simple, all the things that flesh and blood can do, that the Father is gracious and kind to show us Jesus. I want to admit out loud, and I pray that you would as well, that we cannot control these things, but the Spirit is the definitive actor. There's much to be said about the outcome of this faith. The church will be built and death itself, hell itself won't prevail. And we'll figure out how to see there's so much in these last few verses, but I don't want to gloss over what is the most important. And that is, is that there is an answer that will be pressed to your soul. Who do you say that Jesus is? It will be the definitive answer of your existence. And in order to get it right, we're dependent on the Spirit. So let's ask the Spirit to dwell here. Let's pray.